Thank you for tuning in to the Back to Nature podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Rubin. I'm a musician, an artist, a writer, and my primary inspiration always comes from nature. My whole life, I have been in love with this beautiful planet that we live on. And now, as an adult, I am fascinated by the ways modern societal structures destroy nature's ecosystems and our individual and collective role in that destruction. So I've been exploring a low-waste lifestyle since 2017 and have discovered how to divert 90% of my waste from landfills. I consider this lifestyle to be a daily act of devotional love to the earth and a vote for the kind of future that I want to help build, one that is sustainable for both human, animal, and plant inhabitants alike. It is my belief that the separateness from nature that we often experience in our society is an illusion and that in reality, we are deeply interconnected with the earth and each other. I believe we must awaken to this reality so we can shift our modern lifestyle away from a consumer mindset that actually harms life on earth toward a more loving and compassionate society that seeks to support all life. So this podcast explores topics that are in alignment with this holistic worldview. I hope to facilitate conversations with experts on subjects anywhere from sustainability to history to spirituality and beyond. On today's show, I'm excited to introduce Karen Condiff, an incredible artist, an expert gardener who also worked in the solar industry for many years. She also happens to be my mother. Today, in light of current events, COVID-19 and the economic shutdown and everything, we want to discuss the basics of starting a vegetable garden, where you are with what you have right now. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hi, Maddie. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm really excited. You have so much knowledge about gardening and so much knowledge in general about sustainability and living in harmony with the earth. So I'd love it if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, say a few words about who you are and your expertise in gardening and anything that you feel like is relevant or interesting to the conversation. Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm your mom. Um, I'm also an oil painter. Um, I've always loved painting as Maddie calls it, a little slice of life. Mm. I love nature. I do plein air painting, um, still life. I've painted a lot of vegetables that have come out, come out of the garden. So it's yeah. fun. I also worked in the solar industry for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very committed to um, trying to find a way for humans to live comfortably on this planet without uh, being out of sync with what is sustainable. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Your dad and I have lived on this three acres that we have here in Colorado along a Creek for about 30 years, a little more than 30 years. And I always wanted a vegetable garden. I'd had one where I lived previously. So anyway, I got inspired to, to start a garden in 2012 and have been really getting so much joy out of it. So I've learned a lot and I'm really excited to share some of what I've learned. Well, I really feel like you're my first and biggest inspiration when it comes to loving nature, you know, even from a little child. I mean, I grew up on that property next to the creek north of Boulder up Left Hand Canyon, surrounded and immersed in nature. I mean, every day I was outside playing near the creek, playing in the trees, and nature really was one of my best friends, um, and was so alive for me. And you would always point out things like how earthworms, you know, create the soil to be rich and, and full of microbes. And you would always talk about how the animals or the, the birds would, would talk. Like if I would whistle, whistle like a chickadee, you'd always say, Oh, well, be careful what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. And just always inspired me to think of nature as alive and sentient. And I feel like that's such a gift and I'm super grateful to have had that upbringing. Um, 
So I feel like you really understand how nature functions as an intelligent force. And I'm really excited for you to talk about your expertise with gardening um, in connection with that, because I feel like nature is so intelligent, even just the basics of how microbes work inside of soil to decompose, you know, food scraps to create dense, rich black gold for more food to grow. Um, black gold is just another word for a coast. I'm just excited to hear um, your expertise in that field. But before we get into that, I actually want to talk a little bit about gardening in the times that we're currently in, um, in the times of COVID-19, um, because I'm seeing such a really incredible parallel with times in the past, um, specifically during World War I and World War II, uh, people planted victory gardens. And I think that's something that isn't widely known or we've forgotten in our society because, you know, it was quite a while ago and I feel like our societal memory is really short. History is one of my biggest passions and I think it's so important to look at where we come from in order to know where we're going. I feel like we've become so disconnected from nature in our current society. It's just so much about consumerism and just, you know, making a profit for the next quarter and doesn't think about the longevity of our planet or the actual like resources that are available to us on our, on this planet. And it, we don't use our resources wisely and that really bothers me. Um, and I think that COVID-19 and this quarantine that we're all in is a really cool opportunity for us to take a look at the way that we consume resources and our food supply chains and how vulnerable they are and how vulnerable our entire systems are. How dependent we are on things that are beyond our control. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we are not in control of who stocks the grocery stores and when. And that, frankly, is concerning to me. Um, obviously, we're still getting food right now, and there is food in the stores, but it just really makes me wonder, like, where are we going as a society? And in light of climate change as well, you know, having some sort of self-reliance, I think, is a really important thing. Not only self-reliance, but the Victory Gardens in World War II were also seen, World War I and World War II, because they were being planted during both World Wars in the United States and abroad in Europe and Canada. Um, and they were seen as a kind of solidarity, a societal solidarity. And I absolutely love that. I think that is really, really cool because the truth is we are in this together. You know, I mean... We are more reliant on each other than we ever knew. I mean, just think about the frontline workers. Like, they're literally keeping things going right now, aren't they? And just the fact that we're staying home to not get each other sick. It's like we are literally so connected. And um, people knew that. And I think people knew that more um, back during World War One and Two, where reliance on your neighbors and community was you know, more locally sourced because we didn't have the same infrastructure that we do today. So, well, a big, a big part of the country was agrarian. We weren't nearly as urban as we are now. So yes, yes, it is so true. Yeah, we many more people nowadays live in urban societies. And, and like you said, we're not really an agrarian society anymore. Um, and maybe that needs to be changed. So a couple interesting facts about Victory Gardens. Um, so I found this really interesting, but in 1943, there were 18 million victory gardens in the United States, 12 million in cities and 6 million on farms. I find that so interesting. Another interesting fact is that the government organized, um, literature, and distributed it widely to everyone who was interested in starting their own victory garden and actually promoted the idea. Um, and they, like I said, they created the literature. It was given out by the government. It was organized by the government as a way to obviously, you know, supplement rations because people were living on rations in World War II, which maybe is something that we also have forgotten that once times were dire enough where we needed to live on rations, 
um but not only that it really people thought thought of it as that as helping their troops because that produce that they produced was not taking away resources that would help the troops on the front line i feel like that could be said the same thing for today it's like if we grow our own food we are literally not taking food away from those who aren't able to grow it for themselves and so we're essentially supporting those who are more vulnerable than ourselves and i find that really interesting so right. in 1944 hear this this is so fascinating in the united states fruits and vegetables harvested in or from victory gardens were estimated to be 9 million to 10 million tons of produce which equated wow all commercial production of fruit and vegetables in the U.S. at that time. Isn't that crazy? I find that incredible. Oh, so the, Vic- the Victory Gardens produced as much as the commercial growers were producing? Yes. Wow. Absolutely. I did not know that. And when I was researching this topic, I found that out. And I just find that so fascinating. And imagine if we did that again today, you know, and, and, this episode and what I really want to focus on is like, how can we impart simple information to people so that they can feel empowered to start their own victory garden with very little resources and with what they have, where they are, you know, and that's really the kind of the, what I want to achieve with this particular podcast episode, because think about that. In 1944, all the victory gardens produced the same amount of produce as all of the commercial produce. It's it's wow. crazy. Just people in their backyards or front yards, you know, growing vegetables together. Yeah. It's so, yeah. I think that's so beautiful. And I feel like that would really also inspire the United States to come together as a community and realize that we're stronger together and that together we can, we can feed each other. Do you have anything to add about that or... Um, well, just on a personal note, I, um, and these weren't so much about victory gardens, but gardening in general. Um, so my family was rural Mm -hmm. in the South of the United States during the depression and they raised chickens and had a garden Mm -hmm. and had a milk cow and my family got through the depression without a whole lot of, I mean, it was tough, but it was not horrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your dad's family lived in Chicago and they piled seven adults and two children, five adults and two children into a two bedroom apartment. And all, all the adults had to work to put, put food on the table and pay for the apartment and so to me that's a big difference Mm -hmm. when you think about the difference between having a an agrarian lifestyle and a rural lifestyle or even a suburban where you've got a front yard or a backyard where you can grow your own food as Mm -hmm. opposed to living in an urban environment so totally I just think you know, the self-reliance is especially, I mean, COVID-19, but even going forward with climate change, yeah, be really important to be able to grow as much food on as many plots of land as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of climate change, you know, literally the most cultivated crop in the United States is grass. <laughs> for the lawns for lawns yeah. I mean that's ridiculous yeah. that needs to change think about if we could utilize yeah. space for food production oh my goodness um so I think it would be really great if we could start just talking about some simple tips on how to start a vegetable garden with very little resources and space and I feel like this is really your um area of expertise I am the student in this area for sure But I do want to point out a couple of things, which is that it's important to define a garden for yourself. So, for example, uh, when I think of a garden, I think of a lot of space and like a lot of different beds and like tons of different vegetables and flowers and fruits and all kinds of stuff. 
but i've also seen gardens in pots on balconies with low light and people growing vegetables and that's also a garden so i live in denver um in an apartment with a north facing balcony (laughs) and i would love to be able to grow some vegetables on my balcony um and you know do you think that would be possible well, there are some vegetables that do manage to and actually prefer uh, some shade. Okay. I've been doing more research about that, um, thinking about your situation in oh, particular, okay. where you have a north-facing balcony. Yeah. That could be a real challenge because yeah. um, you don't ever get any direct sun on your balcony no direct sun we get bright indirect light um but no direct light unfortunately so here in the rocky mountains where we're at high altitude Mm -hmm. um that is it's from what i'm reading it's worth giving it a shot to grow a few things like lettuce and yeah so i've got a list of the things that can grow in low light Okay. And we can get into this in more detail later, but sure. it, in particular, it's um, it's vegetables that we grow for their leaves oh, and for their roots gotcha. that can grow in some shade. Oh, anything, cool. anything that produces a fruit, mm-hmm. and that's what we're wanting to eat, like tomatoes and bell peppers, those things absolutely have to have full sun for at least oh, six to eight hours a day. But things things like lettuce and kale and um, carrots, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, spinach, Mm. they they do tolerate shade. They typically need three to four hours of sunlight a day. Because we're at high altitude, they're just that bright light. Mm. And I've also been reading you can put aluminum foil on the soil around the plant stems and that reflects some of that light back up onto the leaves so anyway there's some tricks yeah Uh, just to give hope to people that don't have the ideal space for a garden that there's some hope there yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to just bring up as well I think that that's super helpful I didn't know that about the tinfoil um that's really great so you know hopefully we can touch on points that will help anyone with a range of, you know, situations like either, you know, a garden that does get that full six to eight hours of direct sunlight a day or someone like me who won't get any. Um, Hopefully we can help everybody um, find something that works for them. So what are some of the first tips that you would give someone when, if they know nothing like me, um, about really getting started, um, what would you suggest? What are the first steps that people should take when they're planning a garden or wanting to get started? Well, I would really urge people to start small mm-hmm. um, because if you start too big, then you might have some failures and it might dissuade you from having a garden next year. And so if you start small this year, and you can always build up towards having the garden of your dreams. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest people start small, even with a, um, like a four foot by four foot space. You you can, you can grow quite a bit of food in a four by four foot space. So, uh, and I would, I would concentrate on growing things that you like to eat. Because I have made the mistake in the past. I love the look of radishes, and they are the very easiest plant to grow, a vegetable to grow. Mm -hmm. I don't really like to eat them. So (laughs) I would get this big harvest of radishes, and then I'm like, what do I do with these, you know? So so grow what you like, start Mm -hmm. small, and go from there. So Okay, amazing. Um. So what, what do people really need to get started? Like, obviously you just said start small four by four space is even enough to get started, but what else would you need? You know, um, 
Well, so there's a couple of um, critical things okay. for growing plants. Yes. Obviously, you have to have some kind of growing medium. Yes. I, I grow in soil. There are some people that do aquaponics. I know nothing about that. So soil is really critical. Yeah. You obviously have to have some kind of water source. Absolutely. And we've already talked about um, light and yeah. varying degrees of light. So um, those are the three must-haves. Yeah. Then you obviously need some tools mm-hmm. and it's... I think a lot of people think, oh, I need a tiller and I need shovels and I need, you know, this whole arsenal that is going to require a whole tool shed. No, you don't. It's just minimal tools that you need. And so I like to do what's called no dig gardening. Mm. No dig gardening means that you put some mulch down on top of you can take your lawn or a weed field area or whatever you put some cardboard or newspapers down that's going to um, eventually decompose those weeds or the grass roots or whatever okay. um, and then you pile mulch and um, leaves and compost and all kinds of stuff oh. up on top of on top of that newspaper or cardboard Soil is the most critical part mm. of growing because okay. the health of your soil is going to determine what kind of harvest you get and how healthy your plants are. Mm. So anyway, with the no-dig gardening method, you don't need a lot of heavy tools. Okay. So um, you need a hand trowel. Okay. You need something to kneel on or sit on. Okay, like a kneeling couple pad. of buckets. Yep, couple of buckets. Um, you might want a wheelbarrow, but it's not necessary depending on how big your garden is. Okay. Uh, I would recommend, even though it is no dig, you're gonna want a shovel and or what's called a spading fork, okay. which is kind of like a pitchfork, but the tines that the metal part is much more substantial. Okay. Okay. So that's yeah. pretty much it. Some scissors, yeah. some string. Like a watering uh, can maybe? Yeah. Well, there's your water source, either a hose or a watering can. Maybe some trellis material and you okay. can use tree limbs and yeah. lash those together. So okay. there's really not that many tools that you have to have to have a, 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 a successful garden. That's really helpful. So I want to make a note just really quickly. We can make a list of all of these things and we're going to put it in the description. You'll find a link in the description. If we reference anything further along in the podcast, we'll put a link in the description so that you can access this material later and use it to get started with your own garden. So I just wanted to point that out before we went any further. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about soil because it sounded like you had a lot to say about soil quality. And I, I feel like that's actually, like you said, so important. Um, so what, what essentially dictates healthy soil? How can you tell if your soil is healthy? If your soil isn't healthy, how can you make it healthy? What makes soil healthy? Let's talk about that. Right. Okay. So here in Colorado, I'm really lucky because I live along a Creek Mm. and we have really great soil it's it's light but it has a lot of organic matter in it Mm -hmm. and over the years I've just kept adding organic matter organic matter being um, shredded up leaves Mm -hmm. compost is the best thing you can put in your soil decomposed food scraps or is that what you're talking about when you say compost yeah either decomposed food scraps any kind of um, leaves and weed leaves and that sort of thing from your garden. You don't want to be putting any kind of weed flowers that ha- might have mm-hmm. seeds in it into your compost because okay. your backyard compost might not get hot enough to kill the weed seeds. So oh, keep weed flowers saying. out and okay. weed roots. But weed leaves, fine. Our soils here in Colorado tend to be very clay. Oh, yeah. So 
that's fixable by adding the compost. And again, that's a really good reason to do the no dig is that you're adding you're adding organic matter up on top of this. And as you do that, the earthworms start mixing it all together. And eventually you're going to have very nice soil. Where can people get compost if they don't have like a backyard compost or something? Even, even if you have a backyard compost, it might not produce enough compost. I have a pretty big backyard compost mm. and there's four adults that contribute food scraps to it. <laughs> But I still don't get enough. I usually wind up buying compost. And you can get those at any garden center. And during this pandemic and the lockdown, you can find several garden centers. Just find one in your area where you can order the materials, pay for them online, and then get curbside pickup. What about like Home Depot? Because I know that we talked about organic gardening. Home Depot often doesn't adhere to organic gardening standards. Yeah, so if you buy anything at Home Depot, make absolutely sure that it is certified organic. Okay. Because if you don't, you're in danger of getting things that will either harm your soil microbes, okay. harm your own health, okay. harm, harm the pollinators' health, the okay. bees. You know, we all hear about the bees and neonicotinoids. Oh. You know? You really want to avoid anything that might have neonicotinoids like Roundup, that sort of thing. You do not want to bring that into your vegetable garden. That makes total sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So So wherever you you get your seedlings, your seeds, your compost, whatever you bring into your garden, you want to make absolutely sure it's organic. So like here in Boulder County, we have a program where people can bring their yard clippings uh-huh. to a central location and they compost it mm. and then you can get the compost. Oh, so I, cool. Yeah, it's really awesome and I use that on my flower beds. Okay. I won't put that in my, my vegetable garden because you just don't know what people have sprayed on their yard waste that they're bringing in. That's true. So it's important to make sure that we aren't bringing any kind of pesticides into the garden because that harms pollinators. Is that correct? Well, compost and stuff, I'm not too sure that it would harm your pollinators, but it, you know, it's not, it could. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned microbes and I know what microbes are because I'm really interested in soil and, and composting, but just to clarify for other people who may not know what microbes are, can you talk about microbes a little bit and the important role that microbes play in decomposing organic matter within the soil itself? Well, I don't know that I know a lot about microbes. I know they're critters that are okay. microscopic. That's about all I know about them. That's pretty um, cool, though. And they live they, in the soil, right? And us. And we us. are We are like 90% microbes living. Oh. I mean, we're just a walking bag of microbes, which is pretty cool <laughs> to think about. That's so, cool. our, I mean, it's just all over in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And what's really exciting to me is to learn some of the recent science coming out mm-hmm. about Um, the fact that we are microbes walking around Mm -hmm. and the soil, Mm -hmm. we get our hands in the soil, those microbes from our body get into the soil, the soil microbes get into our body and it's a, it's this transference. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons the research is showing that gardening helps depression Mm -hmm. is because we are getting replenished with these living microbes it, it, anyway, it's wow. a whole, whole nother podcast. Yeah, it's maybe, <laughs> maybe we can do exciting. an episode just on that. That's fascinating. And that reminds me a little bit of the research that I've read about the, the gut brain connection where, you know, drinking kombucha or eating fermented foods also helps with depression. So submerging your hands in soil or getting in contact with the earth itself, it sounds like does a similar thing. And I find that really fascinating and amazing. I just wanted to say this while I'm thinking about it is that's a a really good reason to eat locally Mm. is because we are, it's kind of like the whole idea with honey, right? You should eat honey that's locally produced. Mm. It helps you with your allergies. 
same thing with eating local food and you can't get more local than your garden, but eating local food, you're getting microbes that live in the area you live in. And so, yeah, that's so cool. But the microbes also help to break down organic matter. Is that correct? That is right. So that's, that's what they do. And yeah, and I insects mean, as well, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. insects also help with the breaking down of, of organic yeah. matter. So Those little roly-polies and all kinds of stuff. Earthworms and, yeah. you know, all kinds of things um, are needed in order to break down organic matter. I find that so fascinating how nature has this intelligent system to resume what she produces. I just find that so fascinating. Yeah. So there's a couple of things you can do with your soil because you need to know, is my soil going to produce healthy plants? Okay. Uh, One of the first things that I would do is I would go out to your garden or wherever you're going to have your garden and dig down about six inches Mm -hmm. and take a handful of that soil. Okay. And hopefully it's moist and you... Um, kind of crush it in your hand. So you want to compress it into a clod. Okay. Open your hand up. Mm-hmm. And if it did compress into a clod, that's good because that means it's not too sandy. If it, oh. if you can't compress it into a clod, you open your hand up and it falls apart, your soil's too sandy. Mm. So if you compress it, it makes a clod. Then you poke it with your finger and if it breaks apart easily, mm-hmm. you've got really nice soil. Oh, if, very you nice. Poke, if you poke it with your finger and it doesn't break apart, you've got too much clay. Oh. The good thing is that the remedy for too much sand or too much clay is the same thing. Compost, compost, compost. compost. Okay. Organic matter. It used to be everybody said peat moss. We're really trying to get away from peat moss because it is not a sustainable Mm. product. Mm -hmm. They're digging up peat bogs in Canada and Ireland, and it is adding tremendously to the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. No, thank you. Let's avoid that, please. (laughs) No peat moss. Um, One of the things that I like for organic matter, too, is coconut coir. You can buy them in blocks. Yeah. moisten them, they expand, then you put that in your soil and the earthworms go bananas. Oh, that's so cool. Or, or they go kind of coconuts. I don't know which. Ha, but ha, 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 ha. That's hilarious. <laughs> so those are very helpful tips on soil. Anything yeah. else or do you want to move on to some of the other topics? Well, just, the, you know, one other thing about the microbes in our soil, mm-hmm. what, what a lot of people get wrong is they think that they need to fertilize their plants. But what you really want to shift your thinking to thinking about, no, I want to be feeding my soil. I want to be feeding the microbes in the soil because that's what feeds the plants. Then another thing about the soil is when you're laying out your garden, you want to lay out dedicated paths and dedicated beds because once that bed starts getting fluffy and soft, you don't want to be stepping on it and compacting it. I did think of one other thing. Okay. That is a very simple way to have a garden this year mm. that I I did once was you go and you buy a bag of soil at mm-hmm. the nursery or wherever you get it and you take it home you punch a couple of holes in one side of it. Okay. You flip it over and you cut a rectangle in the other side oh. and you just plant right in that. Oh my gosh, I mean, that's so smart. You can't get any easier than that. You can't do anything with deep roots, but you could certainly grow lettuce in that. Totally. You could certainly grow beets in that. You could certainly grow lots of things. So, oh, that's you so know, easy. That's so easy. Don't get too wigged out about getting prepared to plant. So, <laughs> that's so cool. That's actually so inspiring. I, I, it just makes me wonder why more people don't grow their own food. It's literally so easy. Okay, what's next? So you need to have a water source. Right. Um, 
and you know a lot of people can collect rainwater it's illegal now in Colorado to do that um, you can use tap water if it's city water and it's chlorinated I would recommend filling up a big barrel and okay. watering out of that okay. rather than using your chlorinated house water that makes sense uh, does the chlorine yeah. benefit the soil? I'm assuming the chlorine doesn't benefit the plants or the soil. Am I correct? Yeah, you don't, you don't really want that chlorine going right on your plants. And by putting it in a barrel, the chlorine, chlorine evaporates pretty quickly. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and if you have, like we are on a well, first of all, you shouldn't be watering from a well because you're depleting the um, groundwater okay. aquifer. You don't want to be doing that. A lot of places it's illegal uh, or maybe not illegal, but against the um, homeowners association rules or whatever. But the other thing is a lot of people on wells like we are, we're on a water softener. Those Mm -hmm. salts in the water softener, use that in your soil. Over time, you're going to build up the salts and kill everything. Yeah, that's a really bad idea. (laughs) So pay attention to what you're watering with. Rainwater is probably the best. Um, then how do you water? So I found that watering the roots is the best thing. If you do overhead sprinkling, you're getting the leaves of the plants wet. You're introducing a lot of humidity Mm -hmm. and you're going to get things like powdery mildew and, and other kinds of, um, problems with your garden that you don't want. So, Drip watering is the very best method okay. um, or flooding, you know, kind of flooding the root zone rather than sprinkling from overhead. Oh, if that's really what, good. if that's what you have and you sprinkle overhead, sprinkle water in the morning. So it has time to dry okay. before nighttime. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then sense. how much do you water is the other thing. Okay. You don't want to overwater. And you don't want to underwater. And the way I've found is best is if I stick my finger in the soil about an inch mm-hmm. or two and it feels dry, it's time to water. Mm-hmm. Some plants, and you'll learn as you garden, some plants like to be moister than others. Um, some are really, like beans really like to be moist most of the time, Meat, beans and peas and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, mulching helps a lot with that. Okay. but. Anyway, how do you know what plants like to be wet and what plants like to have drier roots? Do you just like have to read about it or? Yeah, I mean, gosh, with with the Internet, you can <laughs> learn anything. So, so uh, <laughs> as you get into this and that's really I mean, I had my parents grew up with gardens and they my dad came from his family were farmers uh, but I, you know, what happened in, and the reason we're all so disconnected from our food supply is none of us grew gardens. I didn't when I was younger, and mm-hmm. uh, I never learned. I never got passed down to me. Mm-hmm. So everything I've learned about gardening has been through trial and error and the Internet. Gotcha. That's pretty much it. So reading books, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a it's a lifelong learning and it's, it's fun. I find it really creative. So. Yeah. I think gardening is absolutely a creative outlet and I love that you are getting back to your roots through gardening and I feel compelled to do the same. Um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you every time in the spring when I go out there and I take carrot seeds are about the size of a grain of sand. I mean, they are Mm -hmm. Tiny, <laughs> but you put it in the ground and you give it some water and then you've got at the end of the season this beautiful carrot it, it just makes me want to cry sometimes Aww. when I'm putting those seeds in the soil because it's just this tiny little grain of sand and it's going to feed me you know it's how cool. it, it's a miracle so really anyway, miracle. and I love that we are reconnecting with that miracle because I think that's really one of the biggest things that's currently plaguing us. 
as a society is not really understanding that miracle, the miracle of life. You know, if we don't understand the miracle of life, we are much more likely to destroy it. So anyways, let us continue with what we need to make this miracle happen. Okay. All right. So um, let's get down to some of the easiest vegetables to grow. Cool. And um, talk about that. Let's do so, um, I really love to grow vegetables where you can just put the seeds right in the soil in the garden. Okay. There are some vegetables that you need to um, start as seedlings indoors because they're so finicky and it's really hard for them to germinate and grow outdoors. But um, and I'll talk about a few of those later, but I, the ones I'm going to talk about right now are ones that you can just get seeds from the seed store. You know, I got my seeds this year. I don't usually, but because of the lockdown, I was at a grocery store and they had a rack of seeds and I bought them mm. organic seeds, mm-hmm. but, um, I usually go to the garden supply store or order them off the internet, but this year... So you can get your seeds, again, try to get organic if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I really like to just put the seeds in the soil and water them and let them grow. And so there's two categories of plants mm-hmm. for determining when to plant. Okay. There's There are some plants that need to be germinated when it's cool and they like to grow in the cool weather. And you can plant those as soon as you can start working the soil in the spring. Oh, okay. So when would that be? Give like an estimated date. Well, some of them you can start as early as the beginning of March. And some of them you don't want to start until like right now, a couple of weeks before the last frost date. Okay. Um, Here in the front range of Colorado, our average last frost date is May 12th, right around Mother's Day. Okay. Um. And so you read the seed packet. Some of them will say plant four to six weeks before the average last frost date. Gotcha. Some of them will say plant two to four weeks before your average last frost date. So you just, you kind of gauge it from there. But Mm. those vegetables, and I'm going to list them off, and here they are in um, more or less alphabetical order, is beets, which are really easy to grow. And these are all easy to grow vegetables. Those are the ones I'm concentrating on. Beets, carrots, Mm -hmm. your um, lettuce type plants like kale, chard, collard green, spinach, those types of things. Um, Peas. Mm -hmm. And you can either do peas that you eat for the pods or peas that you shell and eat the peas, snap peas, snow peas, or shelling peas, Gotcha. radishes, Mm -hmm. onions, and um, strawberries. Those can all be planted before the last frost date. Um, Strawberries and onions, the last two on that list that I read, are... um, ones that you don't plant from seeds, particularly. Um, I get the plants from the nursery. Mm. So onions, they're called sets. Okay. And you use those to plant in the spring, but they're really easy to grow. And then the strawberries, you just get little bare root strawberry plants. And you plant those knowing that you're not going to get any strawberries this year, um, I mean, the plant will produce some, but you want to pick those off. You want to pick the blossoms off so that all the energy goes into the roots. Oh. And then you're going to start harvesting next year. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So those are all things you can still, is, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast, it's not too late here in the front range of Colorado to plant any of those things. Yeah. And just a note, um, you can look up in the internet, whatever area you live in, the internet definitely has that knowledge about when your last frost date or estimated last frost date is, and you can look that up. 
Yeah, and when they say last frost date, that's the average last frost date. So like last year, we got a big dump of snow and a big heavy frost at the end of May. <laughs> oh, joy, oh, joy. Well, so Colorado is, you know, notoriously yeah. bipolar with the weather. So. <laughs> yes. so you have to be prepared even, you know, after your last frost date, if you've put in this next list of things that I'm going to talk about, um, to be prepared to put a bucket over a plant or, you know, something. To cover them in some capacity. To cover them in some capacity to help them survive a frost. Okay. So the ones you can plant that are easy to grow after the last frost date are beans, Mm -hmm. cucumbers, Mm -hmm. winter squash, and summer squash. And I'll talk about the difference in those. Okay. Um, Those you can plant by seed. And then seedlings that get planted after the last frost date are um, basil, tomatoes, bell peppers, and eggplant. Those are all easy to grow, but not from seed. You really want to get those as seedlings from your garden supply. Okay, Okay, that's Uh, so cool. So in terms of squash, the difference between winter squash and summer squash um, is they both grow in the summer, yeah. but summer squash or squash like zucchini, yellow neck squash, those type things there, they have a soft skin. Yeah. Those things you have to eat as you harvest them. Winter squash are called that because they will store over the winter. Oh, okay. Okay. So they have, they develop a hard rind like mm-hmm. pumpkin. Acorn squash, spaghetti squash, all of those are super easy to grow Mm -hmm. and from seed. Mm -hmm. And they're very easy to store through the winter. So that's that's why they're called winter squash. Well, are there any other tips that you want to touch on? Because I feel like that's a really thorough overview of the basics of a vegetable garden. Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, I would just say that I use what's called a square foot gardening method um, where you've got a bed and you create a grid Mm. so that you've got little squares in your garden of each square is a square foot. What I really like about this grid method is it's so orderly. Mm. So like you can grow 16 carrots in a square foot space. You can grow four kale plants in a square foot space. You Mm -hmm. can grow nine beets in a square foot space. Mm -hmm. And what's, what I really like about that is so right next to my nine beets, I can plant my 16 carrots. And then next to that, I can plant, uh, one kale plant. And what that does is it really confuses pests. Oh. So you're not going to lose your whole crop of, of kale to the same pest because you've got one square on this side of the garden and you got another square 10 feet away maybe. Okay. So the pests don't decimate your whole crop. The other thing about that is there's a concept called companion planting where some plants really like to grow next to each other. And so a common one is you grow basil next to tomatoes. And the reason for that is that there are pests that bother tomatoes that hate basil. So by growing them right next to each other, you're using that natural, um, um, deterrent of the basil to keep the pests away from your tomatoes. That's so cool. So, I love that. Um, and I also that's think what it's I, funny because you eat tomatoes with basil. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's so much to learn. And one of the, you should put this link in to your description on your podcast. Yeah. Um, it's called growveg.com. Grow, G-R-O-W-V-E-G. Dot com, growveg.com. Okay. They've got a garden planner Ooh. that 
you you can set it to the square foot gardening method mm-hmm. and then you can click on that particular plant that you're wanting to plant and it'll tell you what the companion plants are. Oh my gosh, that's right? amazing. That's and then so cool. the other thing about this planner, and I think there's a number of them out there that do this, but next year I don't want to be planting tomatoes in the same pot part of this garden that I put it in this year. That's uh-huh. called rotation. And that helps you from building pests up in your soil or, you know, in the garden. And so this planner on GrowVeg.com, when I go to lay out my garden next year, it'll it'll give me this glowing red pulsating (laughs) um, light showing me, no, 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 you don't want a tomato there. You want to. So anyway, GrowVeg.com, very cool. That's so cool. I've learned a lot from it. They've got thousands, not thousands, probably hundreds of videos on everything you need to know about gardening. Oh, that's so fascinating and helpful. Wow. Yeah, I'll definitely link that in the description. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, do you ever plant flowers in your vegetable garden? Oh, absolutely. You want flowers. Partly you want flowers to um, that companion planting idea, right? Yeah. But also to to bring the pollinators in because you're not going to have tomatoes if your flowers don't get pollinated. True. You're not going to have corn if your corn doesn't get pollinated. You know, mm-hmm. we need the pollinators. And so mm-hmm. by planting the flowers, you're going to draw them in too. Borage is one of the best. Okay. That's so. amazing. Yeah, yeah, well, and we want to support our pollinators anyways because they're struggling yes. right now and giving them a safe space to come and be and, and get food for themselves and to strengthen that benefits us. So yeah. I think that's so, so amazing. Yeah. Um. Wow. Well, I feel like that is a really great overview of how to start a basic vegetable garden with very little resources, where you are. Um a victory garden, modern day victory garden. <laughs> yeah. The COVID-19 victory garden. Yeah. I just, I really think that planting a garden is more important now than ever. Um, and I really hope that in some, some, some small way that this podcast episode can help people realize that it's not as hard or complicated as it might seem. And I feel like this has been a theme in my life lately and I bet you can relate, but it's like sometimes you got to just break it down to the next step, the next right thing. Um, and I feel like you can do that with gardening too. And, you know, just break it down. What's the very next step that you got to do. And then the next step after that and the next step after that. And I feel like this kind of creates a nice little package for people where hopefully it demystifies the process and they can just break it down into the simple steps they need to, you know, put some seeds in some soil and give it some water and make some food grow. <laughs> it is literally that easy. It's, it's crazy. It's so cool. I mean, like I said, you can get into companion planting and succession gardening and even talk about that. I mean, there's so many things once you get into it. Yeah. But just put some seeds in some soil and water it. And it's a hopeful thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a nurturing thing to do for yourself. Yeah. Well, and I know that you always tell me that you feel better when you garden, like your body feels better and that your mood is better. And I know that that's true for me whenever I go to your garden and I get my hands in the soil, it always makes me feel better. Um, especially right now. I remember, I think I went before the big snowstorm we had last week, I went over and gardened with you and. I, you know, I think all of us are struggling right now emotionally. I know I am a little bit and, um, just getting my hands in the soil and, and being outside in the fresh air and connecting with nature. I definitely left that day feeling like a hundred percent better than I did when I came in the morning. (laughs) Oh, and then once you've got the seeds in the soil and you come back a few days or a week later and you see those little plants coming up, it's just, (laughs) it's, it's like. Oh my God, I can't believe it's, it's a miracle. It's so fun. It's so fun. It's so cool. And what I also love, 
I feel like right now everything feels so out of control, at least for me. It feels like everything is just kind of spinning out of control and crumbling around me. And I know probably many of us feel that way. And this is something that you can control. I mean, obviously you're co-creating this with nature, but you know, you can put a, a seed in some soil and give it some water and nurture it and food will grow. And that is something that you can control. And I, I love that, you know, it's, it's also something so positive, not only for you, but for the people in your life, you know, and also gardening is amazing to do with little kids. Like if you're at home right oh, now yes. and you have a young family, like kids love gardening. Um, yes. <laughs> they love everything. Kids love worms. Kids love bugs. Kids love the, the little things in life. And for me also, you know, kind of in that theme of like childhood, you know, kids see the world through this worldview, this lens of awe, like everything is amazing. And that's what gardening, gardening makes me feel is it reminds me of that, like that miraculous wonder of the world and of nature. And what better feeling to have right now when everything is feeling so dark and, um, and, and hard and difficult than to surround yourself by that, that awe and wonder, um, of the miracle of life. Yep. So, and it reconnects us with what is essential, you know, food, right? Food, air, and water. (laughs) We need the same thing that the plants do. And so by nurturing the plants, we're nurturing ourselves and reminding ourselves of how simple life really is. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think it's also kind of an antidote to the consumerism of our society to, to, you know, simplify our lives, get back to nature, which is literally the name of this podcast. And (laughs) (laughs) no, seriously, though, I mean, there's a reason that I named this podcast back to nature. It's because I really want to focus on getting back to, to nature, the magic of nature, the simplicity of nature, of our natures, which are in alignment with nature. (laughs) How many times can I say the word nature? Um, you know, I, I just, I feel like it's so important and it's a really beautiful thing to do right now. Um, in this time. So do you have any last thoughts before we, uh, call it a day? Just do it. I love that. Yeah. That's, that's a really good motto. Um, I had a friend lately tell me, he's like, feel all the feels and do it anyway. (laughs) And I feel like that's a really great mode of operation in life in general. Um, Feel all the feels and do it anyway. Um. I mean, even if all you can do is get a five-gallon bucket and fill it with some dirt Mm -hmm. and grow a tomato plant. Do it. Do it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Like I said it before... I'm going to be linking all of the things we talked about in the description so you can reference them. Um, I hope is a helpful and interesting little guide to getting started with vegetable gardening. Um, Connect with me on Instagram, which is my primary social media, backtonature.pod is my Instagram handle. And I would love to hear any questions, if you have any comments, if you liked the show. This is the very first episode, so we're just starting to get into the swing of things. But so grateful to have you guys tuning in. And thank you so much to my amazing mama for her incredible knowledge. I mean, this is literally just scratching the surface. She's She knows so much um, about gardening and is a constant source of inspiration for me in many ways. So thank you so much for joining me today. So grateful. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I hope that you guys all have a good day. So thanks so much for tuning in and we'll be back next time with more. 